Hi, you are now listening to The Secret Life of a Grad Student. I'm Megan. I'm Laura, and we are two grad students who want to share the untold stories of graduate students past and present. Welcome to the show. Today we're talking with our panel concluding our series on conference and travel. Let's start with introductions. Can you tell us who you are and where you're from? I'm Mina Bissell. I'm a distinguished scientist that is not a distinguished scientist. My rank is a distinguished scientist, <laughs> which they have only one these days at Lawrence Berkeley Lab. So I have been here for 45 years. Okay, my name is Pablo. I am from the south of Mexico. I'm a project scientist at Berkeley Lab and here in Berkeley. I'm Marin. I'm originally from Germany and I live in California right now. I am a fermentation scientist at Zymogen, which is a startup in Emeryville. Um, and I went to grad school at JB in collaboration with the German University. Okay, so this uh, group discussion is going to be focused on conference and travel. Conference being like conference or summer school, those short-term travel experiences you can take in grad school and travel being those long-term travel experiences you can do in grad school, like spend entire PhD abroad or doing a long-term internship for over a month. So we're gonna start with talking about conferences and the first question to the floor is going to be, uh, what is your favorite current part of attending conferences? We're gonna start. So Maren, <laughs> do you wanna start us off? Sure, I think my favorite part about going to conferences is the scientific exchange and I'm not only talking about the presentations and the posters but just the scientific chit chat that happens at those posters and also during the, the networking sessions in between the actual science sessions. So I think just getting to know the people and the scientists and learning about how they think about different things. For me it's, it's uh, catching up with old friends, like you start like getting more friends and uh, I know what they're doing. And there's some, maybe some groups that are doing some stuff that seems very close to you. So it's better to see what they're doing before and talk with them maybe and share before you start like, I don't know, putting a grant together or something like that. It's very, very good to connect with the person and see what they're doing and say what you're saying, what you're doing so you can connect. So it's more, more like move around personal connection, connections and see what, what, what's going on in the field. It's very exciting. Uh, well, for me these days, uh, going to a conference is not the greatest thing. So, partly because I have done it so much and I have been <laughs> at this business for 45 years, it was very exciting when I went to my first Gordon conference uh, when I was a first year postdoc. And I had not done that during my graduate school. And the reason for that uh, were complex, but um, they were also because um, I was in a very different uh, environment than most other regular graduate students. I was very close to chemistry department because I was a chemistry major, but the poor students in chemistry department were not going anywhere. Nobody was taking them anywhere. Nobody was paying for them to go anywhere. They would be kept for eight years without ever having gone anywhere. I found that this, I found that 
uh, situation very distressing for these kids. I mean, I wasn't part of it because uh, I, when I was at graduate school at Harvard, I already uh, had a daughter, first year graduate school, which in those days was unheard of. So you, um, so there were something like 200 men uh, when I entered the Harvard Graduate School and only three women. And in the graduate group, we had uh, three women and three guys, and the three guys all dropped out after the first year. <laughs> it was too hard for them. They couldn't, uh, they couldn't just uh, uh, familiarize them, themselves with what was going on. But the women all graduated, and, and despite the fact that I had a daughter, I was actually the lowest number of years, which was six. But now these days, uh, you guys have a lot less, but the median was seven or eight at Harvard in those days. It was quite a long time. And then I had a year of what they referred to as Milton Fellowship. And the reason that I needed to stay is because my husband was finishing his um, residency or his internship or his medical school. I don't know one of those. <laughs> and uh, and so so going to places when I was young was wonderful because you could also meet the scientists you respected yeah. and you wanted to meet them in person. You wanted to know what they talk about, how do they they interact. I'm gonna ask a question to everybody. Who is the most famous or like most exciting person that you got to meet at a conference? Is it okay if you? Uh, for ever, I mean, that's a very difficult thing to ask me <laughs> because I had many of them. Okay, but the person I really loved was Judah Falkland. He was a professor at Harvard, and he had discovered angiogenesis. And he also had a wonderful sense of humor. Oh. And uh, he used to always joke uh, when he would go on the, on the board and I would say, Judah, tell us about some of the stories you had, to, you had to overcome. And he said, well, we used to talk about angiogenesis and everybody thought we were crazy. So mm. our, the best thing we could do was to read our own papers. Nobody else <laughs> was reading them. <laughs> but he, he sort of um, had endured a lot of, uh, you know, dissent, etc. And so had I. Yeah. And, uh, and so it was, uh, it was quite, the two of us were sort of veterans of foreign wars. <laughs> we were seasoned <laughs> with, with that kind of stuff. So you can imagine, I mean, it was a lot of the situation with Me Too in those days. And uh, it just was not prohibited at all. And, uh, and you paid for it if you just said, you what? <laughs> and I had quite a bit of that. So, so what about you guys? Um. I, I met uh, Julian Davis in one conference, which was very, very exciting. That was a workshop. But I also am remembering that I was in a poster session presenting the genome of Streptomyces lividans. Nowadays, that's nothing. But like when I did, that was my PhD work. It was, it was like a new thing, you know, we were just assembling genomes with long reads and stuff like that. And David Hobbwood, who was like the father of the genetics of streptomyces, came and he said like, I mapped that genome with the, like, like these linkage map, maps that were done like in the 
for, for the genetics, like the real genetics. And he's like, how, how does it look like? And I was like, it's the same. And I was all nervous. You know? He's like, that's a good job. Like, you're confirming what I say, the power of genetics. And I was like, yeah, I actually use the map to, you know, to, to, to close the genome. And it was, but it was, it was, you know, like, if there's someone who knows about it, it was that guy. Julian Davies was my husband's mentor when he oh, took wow. a... <laughs> my husband was a medical student and he took a year off to go to Julian's lab oh, to wow. learn molecular biology and also he wanted to learn to play the cello. Oh, wow. and, and I met him in that lab when I was a graduate student at the same department. I was in the microbiology department and Julian has been a very good friend for years and years oh, wow. and years. Yeah, <laughs> And he's now in Canada and yeah. he has a lot of Iranian uh, who come from Iran and many of them are, are are already PhDs and they have done wonderful work in microbiology and they all work for him and they have such a good time and he had discovered some bacteria in a, in a, in a hill or something that had something very special and I now have forgotten what it was. So next time he comes I have to ask him. <laughs> but he was, he was here actually uh, just a couple yeah, of years yeah, ago. Yeah. Okay, I think we're going to move to our next question. Okay. Laura, you want to um, Sure. So, if you were advising current PhD students, so our listeners, some of them, what conference style would you recommend them? Uh, more like intimate or like big festivals, conferences? Maybe Marin? I've only really been to the bigger conferences. So, I think the smallest one that I've been to was the Yeast Conference in Stanford, which was already... 400 people. Oh wow. So I can't really talk to the smaller conferences. Um, I did enjoy the bigger conferences. However, the caveat I would say is um, to getting into those groups. So if you're at bigger conferences, and it's probably the same in smaller conferences too, like there are established groups of people and mm. trying to get to connect mm. with them, um, I think it's a little bit tricky. The first conference that I went to, I actually had a buddy with me. So we just like tag teamed and started conversations with people to oh, help yeah. overcome that. So I like the bigger conferences, but it is harder to leave an impression at a bigger conference, and it's harder to get a spot to present something at a bigger conference. Yeah, it's true. I've, I mean, I think, I think they both have uh, their advantages. Like a small one, you get more time to show what you're, what you're doing and also to talk with more people. And, but in the big ones, the good thing is that you can do a quick survey of what's going on in the field. Like if you go, I remember one in Switzerland for the Protein Society, it was my first international conference. And, and you get to see what protein engineering was in, in that 2010 or something like that. <laughs> when was it? 2010, I guess, or 2000. I'm ashamed of saying it. <laughs> uh, uh, so what was the, the, the protein engineering in that moment? You can see it, like everybody that is doing something relevant is there. And, uh, but then nobody did look at my poster, like, but I look at everybody else, so I guess, you know, that's, that's good. Yeah. That's good Not spot. even one come talk to you? Maybe someone from Mexico. I was in Mexico in those days, so maybe someone, but it wasn't really like, mm -hmm. like very, mm -hmm. you know, like productive time of, of scientific discussion. It was more like, oh, you're doing something. Yeah, I'm doing something here too. Like I have my poster here. How is it? Like, did you got food? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, but not really, you know, about the science, but we got to see like what's going on. 
But those poster visits are also super nice because they see that you're like sort of just hanging out and no one's coming to visit your poster. So some people are nice and they target you yeah. so that you don't feel left out. <laughs> yeah, I usually try to do that with uh, with the student. But I like uh, I like the small conferences. I my first conference a really big uh, sort of. My first conference was a Gordon conference, and they were more than 120 people. And and uh, you can't leave. You sort of they put you in one of these horrible uh, girl or boy uh, high school places, and the beds are uncomfortable, and the food is lousy, and there is no wine or whatever. After that, you can go late at night after dinner. Go to a room where the younger people who are serving you can't be there. And then you can booze up and <laughs> do whatever. But but the problem was that uh, that the food was really awful and the beds were. So as as I grew a little bit older, I decided that's not for me. <laughs> and and I don't like run, uh, big conferences because um, it's sort of uh, you feel like a cattle. Uh, getting yeah. herded from one side to the other and once in a while you meet somebody you know and if you don't then who do you go to there's so many yeah. things yeah. that is difficult so the smaller conferences take part of that stuff for example AACR American Association for Cancer Research is huge 30,000 yeah. people go to it you know oh. or more and uh, and it's just it's just impossible so i i basically go these days only to lecture and even then i'm not saying yes to many of them i i choose now whom i want to talk to it's usually with young students and postdocs <laughs> like old fogies don't need to hang in together <laughs> i mean they don't change their mind they don't learn anything new so what the heck <laughs> you can go and teach somebody something good. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so we're going to move on to like long-term travel in grad school and after grad school. So my question is, each of you guys come from across the world and did research in places away from your home. So my biggest question is, uh, what are the impacts of the cultural differences that you may have experienced while traveling during your PhD. And by cultural differences, I mean the cultural differences between your home state and your destination. Um, we want to start. I, I can start. Um, so I'm originally from Germany, and we are um, very pragmatic about things. And the first thing that I noticed when I came to a lab in the States is that everyone seems to be an expert in what they're doing and they also pronounce themselves like good at what they're doing um, and that was very new to me in Germany and when I was talking to my German PhD advisor and he was saying that I was doing a fine job or a good job I was kind of disappointed because everyone here I was saying like oh that's amazing that's great <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> I'm glad you didn't work with my husband. <laughs> so when he had these interns who were working with him and he would give them his own projects and stuff, but he would look and say, mm, not bad, not bad. <laughs> that was his highest 
phrase, and his postcards who are now famous professors, when, when I had talks with them, how was it working with Mandy? They said it was great. He would take his own work and give it to you. But when you go to talk to him about the paper, and he wouldn't even put his name on their papers so that they could go, yeah. oh, wow. go up, because yeah. these were already interns, you know, whatever, which is very unusual. I don't, I didn't do that except lately. <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, he, oh, he says, oh, not bad. And, and it took us so long to learn that that was praise. <laughs> yeah, I got used to the, like, amazing and great, like, you know, fairly quickly because it's nice to hear. But then when I was going back and my supervisor was looking through my PhD thesis and all of a sudden the base level was set a little bit lower, I just needed him to clarify what he actually meant if I needed to do some corrections or if this was actually good. But he had actually also studied in Berkeley for a while. So he was like, oh, yeah, I remember now you were actually used to the American standard. And so, no, it's actually good. <laughs> it's right. But that was the main thing, just the level of... Um, excitement about the work. So oh, yeah. you live here now? Yeah, I live here now. I've and been living here for five years now. Oh my god, five years. And you have significant others? Or? Yeah. Oh, yeah? Okay, good. <laughs> that's our next question. Yeah, that's the next question. <laughs> All right. So, um, what's the question? Is um, Oh, the cultural differences, yeah, okay. So, one that is very neat for me that I experienced when I moved to Australia, for example, in Europe, and here also does the same, is that we are very, we talk a lot to each other, we say hi every time in Mexico. And that's something that in, in other places is not that, like it's so intense. Like for example, if, you, if your office is in the back of the, room and you have to walk through it, it takes half an, it takes half an hour to say, hi, 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 hi. <laughs> and then if you don't do that, then there's a friend there or a colleague that, that, you know, have a good relationship with, they might be like, oh, Pablo is mad, you know, like, why didn't he say hi to me? And that's something that it took a little bit for me to learn that it's okay, like, like people are quieter than, Go by than you. you. <laughs> yeah, and, and, but it's good to have, like, it gives you, like, a little extra sensitivity to have better contact with people. I discovered later on that I could, like, I am over the top on that, on my, the way I connect. But if I regulate that a little bit, I can connect with more people, right? Like, I talk more, I get to talk with people, and I think that's kind of, kind of good, yeah. yeah. But it is, a, it is a different, I have to like sometimes control myself, I guess, before I buy a Yeah, I came here very young, all by myself, and this, I come from Iran, and when you come, you came from middle class or upper middle class, uh, it, the country was very um, strife, strife, or whatever, you know, it, it had classes, very different classes. And so uh, it was a common phenomenon that they sent their young children, meaning the ones who just about to finish high school, but they sent them very often for, uh, for uh, doing graduate work, uh, or I mean college, to, to other countries. And, and so when I came to US, I was barely 18, I came all by myself. I had an uncle who was a professor of mathematics and he lived in New York, but he lived alone. And he um, was kind of aloof, but, but a very nice guy. But I didn't live with him. He just found me a place to, you know, but I was horribly homesick because I had never left home. And the other thing is that I had never even washed a single 
uh, glass or cup or anything, you know, and oh, I had wow. a nanny when I was younger and then we had servants in those days. And I remember uh, I roomed with a Turkish girl who, uh, who the two of us were trying to learn English. I didn't know very much English at all. I hated anything I had to memorize because memorization was hard for me after a, um, event I had when I fell on my head and broke my skull and I got deaf in here and you know and I had photographic memory but I only kept this part of it when I could do science but not this part which was I had to learn you know when you learn language you have to memorize I could yeah I mean, just how I learn English I don't know but I it was very very hard for that reason and uh, and also I was very close to my mom and then in later time it I just was so homesick. I would write every day, every single day. <laughs> I wrote for a year, <laughs> and and it all okay. I even had a cousin that was, but it was hard to get used to it. But in a way, it makes you very independent. Yeah. And so I learned. I learned even when with my first husband actually to cook. <laughs> <laughs> My first, uh, when I was leaving the country, my mom said, well, you, you want to, you just want to go to the kitchen and have, uh, you know, the cook show you how to do it. So I went and I burned all the rice. <laughs> 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 yeah, but, 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 you know, it's a good thing. I mean, after a while, you, but, but at some level, that very incredible closeness you have with your nuclear family, uh, it's difficult to to leave that behind. Yeah. So I think that leads us to the next question. So looking back on your experience, um, how important is the influence of relatives and loved ones uh, when you take the decision on traveling long term? So, and I'm just going to clarify. Uh, so please share your stories and get into the details here. And. Uh, we're talking about loved ones, both in your home countries and also in your final destinations. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, no, sorry. Oh, I mean, he was just <laughs> saying that he was, you were very close to your mom. And so, huh. uh, but she wanted you to go abroad oh, yes. and get your education. Yes, so you yes. get her full support. Yes, so that was very important. Yes. Well, she was, it was a very interesting. I came from a very, very educated family. So, uh, my uncles uh, were all judges and you know lawyers and whatever. My father had a PhD in law; he was a lawyer, and, and my aunts were professors, uh, gotten PhD in Sorbonne or done whatever, whatever. And the only one in the family on my mother's side who actually didn't work was my mom, and she was miserable because she could see that she was very young when she married for various reasons. My father was 13 years older, had seen her and had fallen in love with her and, and so and he had uh, political ambitions and my mom uh, did only one year of college and then she had to go with him all over the place and then she had very soon my sister and, and she did not want to have any more kids because she wanted to go back to college and then I came and uh, it was very hard very hard and she what she found very very difficult and I think this is a very important thing if you read uh, an essay I wrote when I won the Wilson Award of American Society of Cell Biology 
It was in Molecular Biology of the Cell, the, the journal of the American Society of Cell Biology. You, I said all these things that, you know, but it was very hard to, for her to, had to ask for money. Yeah. Because she, so one of the big things I always say to the people, um, travel is good for you, having your own money is very good for you, and if you want to raise your children, it's good after high school, say to them, take a year off, work. <laughs> and our daughter did that, and, um, and she, she didn't work in between as my husband had done when he was growing up. He had to work every summer or something one time in a cannery, one time in something else, because the father who was American and who had sort of put himself through medical school, and they and they were after Second World War, they just wanted to see these people to, to learn how to work. And he went to fancy schools, but he had to uh, work in the cafeteria or something you know, like that. We didn't do that with our kids. Nobody had done that with me. I didn't, as I said, I didn't, you know. So I, I kind of feel that it's very good for people who travel to be prepared about the fact that they have to be flexible with, you know, they say in Rome do what Romans do and whatever. <laughs> you know, you have to learn, you have to learn. but. But on the other hand, it's also very good to keep some of your traditions and things. And, yeah. and I think people, I always say to people that the immigrant families, um, it takes a quite a long time to forget um, where they came from. And it's very nice to not forget that, at least for a bit, you know, and, and, uh, and cherish what, what you grew up with, because your epigenome depends on that, <laughs> you know? You remember what the smell of the food, the music, the dancing, the hugging, the, you know, all these things are part of your tradition. So as you travel, you want to open your mind for that, you know, to a certain extent, but you also don't want to break the ties. Uh, general question for everyone, and I want to get back to the initial question, but what are some, um, cultural motifs you guys have sort of kept um, in your lives that you've made in the United States? Like, so things from home that you've taken and brought back into your culture and your um, homes here. Pablo is cooking pretty well Mexican yeah, food. This is California, like, this is not really like big, a big change. No, I guess music a lot. I, I, I do listen to a lot of, of Mexican music. Yeah, that that that's a, a major thing. I cook a little bit, not not that much, but yeah. Uh, but mostly, mostly that and the literature of Mexico. Every once in a while, I sneak a couple of books from from beloved authors from Mexico, and it's just like being there, like yeah. just being back. I have gone from Persian music, uh, which are very, very sort of very foreign to most Americans, uh, if they want to hear. But, but on the other hand, there is part of the Iranian which is sort of like the Mexican. So when people get up and dance mm. <laughs> and they do, you know, that kind of stuff. This here, you don't, you can't quite do that. But I have moved to classical music and I love it. <laughs> and my husband plays the violin and he plays the piano. He's the musician in the thing. And, and I love the opera now, very mm -hmm. much. Not Wagner, but Mozart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, difficult. I mean, I listen to 
German music. I read the German newspapers. I think one thing that I will not give up about my Germanness is trying to be on time as much as possible. <laughs> <laughs> so I will text if I'm two minutes late. So <laughs> I'm not going to change that. Well, that's the Jewish thing about the news. Like I do, I do read the Mexican newspapers every morning. Like I go and check what's going on. I can't stop doing it, but uh, yeah, sometimes it's sad, it's like, not great. So let's uh, wind back mm -hmm. to the original question, just about um, how loved ones have influenced um, your decisions. You want to go, Mara? <laughs> <laughs> So similar to Mina, I actually came here by myself and my parents were not super happy that I was choosing to go. So I wasn't sent, I chose to go and I was initially only planning on staying seven months and decided that I wanted to do my PhD here. My parents were, they were supportive. Uh, they tried to talk me out of it in the beginning, but then in the end saw that... How many brothers and sisters? I have two older brothers. So you were the baby? I was the baby. I'm still the baby. You <laughs> <laughs> um, two are out of two. <laughs> um, so they were really supportive, but yeah, being the baby and being the only girl, um, they kind of wanted me to stick around. Um, when I showed them that there was Skype and like internet phone calls, mm -hmm. um, it was a little bit easier. Yeah. And then in terms of loved ones here, I actually did meet my husband while working um, at J-Bay and I think that definitely played a part in um, feeling more supported in developing as a person, developing as a scientist in a different country. Is he country. German or not? He's American. He's American. Very good. Mine <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> 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 future one too, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. In any case. Uh, the support from my family at home and then also the support from my new family here and also friends um, really helped and I think that throughout those past five years I've been constantly developing myself as a person um, and just being flexible as you were saying like just it's absorb important. what's going on around you being and flexible and having a sense of humor <laughs> the German. sense of humor doesn't, <laughs> the sense of humor doesn't come very easy to Germans <laughs> I believe, a lot of fun I believe you're also the youngest of your family too. So I am also the youngest of my family. family so with my with, in my family, the story of moving out and being around, uh, because I never got to settle, and maybe I'm going to move again next year or something. Um, it was easy because my sister is a scientist. So I'm, I'm the third one. I have an older brother who's an engineer. My second, my sister is the second one. She's a scientist. She was in Harvard as a postdoc. So she, she moved out of Mexico before she left when she was like 18. And in Mexico, we grew up in the south of Mexico. My parents are educated and so on, but the context is not like this doesn't happen. Like she moved uh, to the university uh, when she was 18, somewhere else. Like, I guess, like my, my parents want her to, you know, to try and everything, but they were like, that's a bad decision. And then she went to Mexico City by herself. How many kids all together? Uh, three, we're three. Just yeah. three. Just three. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm the youngest, so it was easier for me because whatever I, I was doing, my sister had done it before. So whenever I was like, oh, I'm going to this country, and they're like, okay, good. And they, they, would, be, they would be more worried about. But her, then they know? come to see you too. Is your, your close? Did they come? 
Uh, no, they haven't. Uh, my parents are are like very comfortable living in the rainforest in that in that <laughs> green area of Mexico. So they're they're fine with that. Uh, so we have to go more often. Actually, go. so so it's been easy. My 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 okay. my story is because my sister opened that and she she's she's been very inspiring on on that part. And um, yeah, I mean my family is fully supportive. I think they're very proud of. Yeah. So it's, it's not a, okay. It's not let's a move problem. on because yeah, <laughs> final question. question. Uh, so yeah, we'll keep this one brief because we gotta wrap yeah. up. Uh, so we're acknowledging that it is an absolute privilege to both travel and attend conferences. Um, but for those of us who maybe can't do either, is there a silver lining for such students? And the reasons for not attending conferences can be either financial or personal. Do you have any advice? There is, there is none. (laughs) No silver lining for kids who do not uh, travel. Oh, it's very important to travel. It's very important to visit other countries. It's very important to. My daughter finally went to France for a year before she came back and went to Berkeley, and uh, she learned beautiful French. And at the end, they started doing something so many different things, you know. And she went into Hollywood and made movies and then married oh, wow. the guy who wrote the Fight Club. Oh, wow. uh, yeah, yeah, see my son in law is wrote the Fight Club and, and she just <laughs> and she and she uh, yeah <laughs> she is really funny. Everywhere in the world I go when I say that <laughs> that's in that. Yeah, he's, he's wonderful. He's a very nice guy too. And, and it's very important, and it's, it's, it's also important to then not hang on to your, what you think you have to do if the other one is different. Try to get closer to each other, try to, try to, you know, I mean, I didn't quite learn that until I was 50, but my big advice to you guys is that uh, life is too short. <laughs> and that uh, you have to do one good thing, okay? Just be serious about your science, do whatever it is you do, do good work. Always have a sense of justice, always have a sense of empathy. And don't kind of act as if this person who coughed uh, didn't put the hand here is a <laughs> real idiot or whatever. Okay? No, you do it. You do you know, I mean, I, I do that too, and I, you know, but, but you just got to learn, you know, that people uh, come in all different sources and different whatever and whatever. And if they're idiots, you don't have to uh, hang out with them, okay? There are a lot of idiots out there. There are a lot of stupid people who are, you know, who needs them. But you don't have to hang out with them. It's a wonderful country for this. And the other thing is, um, here you can change your your major. Here you can, both of my children have PhDs and they're doing entirely different things from what they, they did. And that's, that's a wonderful blessing for people to be able to do that. So I, I kind of uh, would say that go, go abroad, young man. <laughs> somebody said that to somebody, I don't know who was to whom. So um, it's, it's really important. And I just, uh, I, I was once in a place in Wisconsin in some big thing with the snow, the poor kids, there were 130 students at my dinner. And so I keep asking them, where do you go to do whatever? It was a small town in Minnesota. 
uh, in this. I went there. Uh, I went undergraduate. I went high school. I went there. I, I, you know, and now they're in graduate school. And they all had done that. None of them had <laughs> left. <laughs> and I finally said, come on, you guys, get a life. <laughs> I go out, see something, do something. <laughs> and they all were sort of like this. And I said, and write me, how many of you have done this? I heard from three. <laughs> it's really, really important. And it's not... Uh, and, and I really uh, recommend, and I want you to recommend, for people to read a book I just finished called Educated. You oh, yeah. He wrote, yeah. He wrote, he wrote. Yeah. It is magnificent. It's is magnificent. It? Yeah. It's a, this poor young girl who is in a Mormon family, and they don't think oh. the women should get educated. I have it in my, in my desk right now. <laughs> it's lovely. It's oh, really lovely. good. It's a really good book. Yeah. Yeah. I'll look at it for my vacation reading. <laughs> yeah, you really. I have, I, I have it in my t Kindle, otherwise yeah. I would pass it on to you guys. Yeah. But very important, this yeah. young woman, what she went through and what she ended up doing. And wonderful. It's, yeah. it's just, uh, you know, it opens your horizon about how when you see, I mean, this guy just basically said, you know, the sun is burning all over her body as void. God will provide. <laughs> I mean, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's yeah. really the most amazing, but you should read it. It's yeah. a very good read. Do you want to so, add something, yeah. guys, about the silver lining? I think, I, think, uh, <laughs> I think you should definitely travel. It's also fun. You meet a lot of friends, and it makes you feel like you're part of science is something global, you know, like human effort that everybody's doing is something that is happening in short time. Is, is, so it's great to be part of that, and it feels more like that when you are like around and then you are in labs where things are happening. It's exciting. Uh, just wanted to say for the like if you if there's not that much money around in your lab, for example, in in Mexico it was common that the conferences would be in beautiful towns that we have over there. So it was easy just to go there, right? To, to you don't have to pay for the travel that much because it's just local. Many conferences happen in, in beautiful towns in Mexico. Uh, so that's, in, in my case, that was a good opportunity. And the other thing, um, I think if you are really interested in science and then you find, it, find the thing that you really like, money is just gonna find you. Like you're, you'll be there mm -hmm. and then you're gonna write your proposal and someone's gonna get excited about it or he's gonna believe that you're excited about it. Exactly. So you, and they're gonna pay for you. That's how I did it. Like I didn't have money and mm -hmm. I have been like, oh no, like, 12 countries and to me that's like in my family like we were educated no but nothing was you know we, we didn't need any yeah. anything we were not poor but we couldn't travel this way yeah. it happened because because of science and so and it's exciting like I'm, I don't want to I would just add that I also I got to the states on a stipend from the German government I wrote a bunch of proposals to get that money to get come to Berkeley I also was just living off of beans and rice because a German stipend in Berkeley doesn't actually get you very far. Um, and afterwards, I, I just, while I was there, I convinced someone to believe in me and to like invest in me. And I have profited and benefited from that relationship until now. And I'm still benefiting from that relationship. You just have to put in some 
you have to put in a lot of effort if you don't have money to to buy the travel for yourself you have to convince people to invest in you and you make sure that that investment goes a long way no i mean uh, <laughs> also you know i had a different kind of experience in the sense that that my husband and i married and neither of our families were happy that we got, you know, the parents, his parents were preserved, my parents were went preserved because I, I, I divorced my first husband and uh, got remarried. They were furious about that, about why that happened and when. And, and so nobody was sending us any money and we, and he was a, a intern and I was a graduate student. Yeah. <laughs> so I was making, you know, solo and we had already a daughter. My daughter was eight years from my first marriage, and she was already eight. And it was a lot of, I mean, she wasn't already, she was eight when the other one came. But, but in the early days, we had no money. And I would go shopping with my, I had a girlfriend, and, and we would go shopping, and she would buy meat, and she would buy milk, and she would buy, I just would buy rice. Because we didn't have any money. Yeah. Because both sides of them. But it, it changes so fast. It changes yeah. so fast. And as soon as you have someone else who is actually also working, and in the old days, you know, everybody was saying to me, how did you do it? How could you have kids? Didn't you feel guilty? Didn't you? And I said, no, you know, I didn't feel guilty because I would have jumped off the roof if somebody had said to me, stay at home. In those days, you know, yeah. I mean, they all... So, you know, if you ask my mother, mom, do you stay home or, I mean, do you, when you have children, do you stay home or do you think you should go and have a job? She said, don't have children and have a job. <laughs> <laughs> because, if you don't want to, but, but because you need to be responsible for yourself, not to your mother, not to your dad, not to your father, not to your grandmother, not to your children. Never, 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 you have to stand on your own feet. It's the most important thing. And for that, you need to travel and <laughs> be on your feet or whatever. I gotta go. Okay. Right. Thank, Thank you so you. much, Thank everybody. You everyone. Thank Thanks you. so much for participating. Good luck, good luck. Thanks for listening to our series on conference and travel. Big thanks to our new editor, Sam Crow, for cutting this episode together. Wasn't it great? Be sure to catch our bonus episode next week on the extraordinary life of Nina Bissell. And stay tuned for our next series on work-life balance. This has been The Secret Life of a Graduate Student, signing out. <laughs>